This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. In this episode, we're going to talk about time. In most police investigations, the first hour is crucial to solving the case. They call it the golden hour. Then, the next 24 hours, 48 hours, can be critical to gathering the right evidence and following the right leads. But in one case, the investigation didn't begin until three decades after the event. Bernadette Cooper went missing in 1993, but she wasn't reported missing until 2020. In this episode, we explore this extraordinary case, meet the man who's dedicated years of his life to getting answers, and invite you, the listener, to help surface the information needed to solve the case. We look at the possibility of an intentional disappearance, questions of missing money, and even the rumoured connection to a Costa del Sol crime syndicate. My liaison officer, a DS at the Met, said that he had never heard uh, of a case with this depth and complexity and intrigue in 20 years on the force. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series brought to you with support from the charity Missing People and investigation specialists Locate International. Listen, don't let them sell the pub. I've got the money. I'm coming home. I've got it. I've got the money. This is The Missing. Bernadette Cooper. It's 1992 in Malaga on the south coast of Spain, a magnet for holidaymakers and expats who want to enjoy the sunshine. And to cater to their British tastes, dozens of cafes, restaurants and bars litter the seafronts and main streets. Bernadette Cooper and her husband Brian own one such bar, Molly Malone's, an Irish pub with plenty of charm. But the bar has run into financial difficulty and the banks have threatened Bernadette with closure. She has no choice but to temporarily close Molly Malone's and fly back to London. She tells friends in Spain that she can get the money she needs. And just a few weeks later, true to her word, Bernadette phones a friend and tells her she's done just that. Hello, it's Bernadette. Listen, don't let me sell the pub. I've got the money. I'm coming home. I've got it. I've got the money. Tell the lawyer, stop them selling the pub. I'm coming back to Spain. The phone call is the last contact anyone has had with Bernadette. Her children, her friends and her extended family haven't heard from her since. She never returned to Spain and nine months later, the bar was under new management. But the mystery of what happened to Bernadette is as baffling now as it was then. 
one family member in particular has become more vocal in his attempt to get to the truth. It's not just the desire for closure which drives Bernadette's nephew, Leon, but a promise, a promise he made to Bernadette's brother on his deathbed, that he would find out what happened to his sister. Even all these years later, he was still, his sister was missing and there was no news of her. And it didn't feel right and it didn't feel good. And he never got to know what happened to her before he died. So Leon's determined to find out what happened to Bernadette. It's a question which has forced him to confront heartbreaking theories, investigate suggestions of organized crime, and even murder. But he won't stop until he has answers. She's my aunt and she's kind of a special aunt to me because we spent a lot of time together when I was younger. And I really did cherish the relationship I had with her. It felt special to me. And I suppose that's one of the impetus that's made me want to do something for her, you know. It just feels all wrong. And I want to bring that picture back, you know, to happier times when, um, when we shared those kind of moments as a, as a nephew and an aunt. Leon's recollection of Bernadette was as the wild child of the family, a woman of two extremes. Bernadette has, uh, is a very mercurial person. Very much liked to uh, have fun, to dance. She liked music very much. She liked to go to bingo, very much on her own, um, very much an individual person as far as that was concerned. Didn't need the company of others to enjoy herself. Yes, yeah, on occasion she was a great fun person to be with. Other times she was a little bit melancholy, but yeah, that, that was her, really, the two extremes. And maybe those two sides of Bernadette can be put down to her upbringing. She was born in a small town in the county of Monaghan in Ireland. It's green and lush and has a population of just a few hundred. But later, Bernadette came across the pond to London, drawn by the vibrant swinging 60s scene and the hustle and bustle of the capital. And it was there, in a sea of mini dresses, free love and Afghan coats, that she met her future husband, Brian. She found someone she loved and married, had two children, and embraced the whole life of London as it was then, a very optimistic place to be. She was in a bigger city, obviously, and was thriving with that and uh, loved her new life and new opportunities that it gave her. In 1987, the Coopers got itchy feet. They wanted more from life, a new challenge, a new adventure. And so they headed to sunny Spain, Malaga to be exact, a small town called Ben El Medina. They promptly bought a bar, which they named Molly Malone's, and began living the dream. Very much a surprise to everyone in the family, but also, you know, everyone was very encouraging of them. It seemed like a fantastic opportunity, a life in the sun. I should say that the bar they bought is not the same as the Molly Malone's in Ben El Medina today. In fact, there's no connection. But in the early 90s, with its cheap drinks, live music and charismatic landlords at the helm, Bernadette's Molly Malone's became a roaring success. Yes, I think in the first couple of years, Molly Malone's was absolutely thronging. Um, customers 
out the door, people dancing on tables, the, the place was full. The dream that they had seemed to be coming to a real, real fruition. The gamble was paying off and it very much felt like that. They, they worked themselves to the bone, obviously, with that amount of clientele coming through the door. And that was really the salad days, the, the good times. But uh, then came the recession of the late 80s, early 90s across Europe. Like many businesses across Europe, things became very tough very quickly. For the throng of expat bars in Spain, competition was fierce and rivalry even fiercer. As one by one, the bars started to go under. It became a very, very difficult place to be. Without the clientele and with them paying rates and rent and all kinds of bills like that, things started to not stack up for them. And lots of tension and anxiety became the norm. Bernadette's marriage was the next thing to falter. And in the summer of 1991, Brian left Bernadette and the Spanish bar and went back to the UK to prepare for a divorce. Bernadette soldiered on. She had a child with her. Things were still extremely difficult. Many of her friends decided to pack it in. Others urged her to do the same. But she was very, very, very determined to carry on, to make a success of it. She wanted a dream. She was living it for a while and she wanted it again. And she saw it as a setback for sure. Obviously, she was not happy at this stage. And she spent many hours on her own with the bar open and nobody in it but her. But she wanted to have it. And I knew her as a very determined woman. Towards the end of 92, Bernadette could no longer ignore the bar's mounting debts and the calls for payment from lenders. She made the decision to close Molly Malone's, though only temporarily. She told her friends in the bar trade that she was going back to the UK to sort out her divorce from Brian and to get the money she needed to carry on. Though exactly what happened when Bernadette arrived back on British soil is murky. This is the point where things become very obscure and it's very hard to ascertain exactly what happened with Bernadette when she got back. I know the first thing she did was to canvass the family, our family, for funds. And she approached my dad, for example, her sisters, her brothers, for varying amounts of money, which in total came to around £10,000, which is a lot of money back in those days. In fact, that's about 20 grand today, too much for any members of the family to get their hands on. Leon remembers that Bernadette... ..took it a bit personally, and she didn't take kindly to the family not being able to help her. There were some arguments, you know, but nobody was in a position to help her, but she took it badly. So when the family heard that she'd gone back to Spain, or assumed she'd gone back to Spain, I think everybody in the family gave her a wide berth and decided that, you know, give her some cooling-off period and let the dust settle. For a few weeks, nobody in the family checked on Bernadette. They just assumed she was back in Spain. Only when they tried to pick up contact did things take a turn. After quite a while of phone calls not being answered and letters, she was a great letter writer at that stage, so when those letters didn't appear, when birthday cards didn't appear, and then finally when Christmas cards didn't appear, 
that in tandem with the phone calls not being answered, then some red flags went up. Bernadette's sister decided to fly out to Spain. She wanted to check that Bernadette was in fact okay. My auntie flew down there with her husband and I think you can probably imagine her shock when she rolled up to the bar and it was under new ownership. It transpired that Bernadette's belongings were packed up in the loft of the bar gathering dust and that was a hell of a shock for everyone and she hadn't been seen or heard of for at least 12 months. But no one seemed to remember Bernadette. And if it wasn't for the vague recollection of her belongings in the attic, it was as if she had never existed at all. The Scottish woman standing behind the bar said that she'd taken it on a vacant lease and had been running it ever since. Bernadette's friends in Spain hadn't heard from her either. They assumed she'd turned her back on the pub after all and stayed in the UK. For Bernadette's family to say alarm bells were ringing was an understatement. Much more than alarm bells, it was very much sirens. The family sprang into action. They canvassed the Irish community in the area. Fellow bartenders and bar owners, friends of Bernadette's, friends of friends, anyone they could think of. And what transpired is that nobody, not one person, had seen Bernadette from the moment she'd left to go back to the UK, some 12 months earlier. Once the news spread and filtered back to my family in the UK, obviously they, they jumped into motion and started phoning her ex-husband, Brian, and finding out what had happened. And his narrative was that she'd gone back to Spain and he didn't know anything more than that, hadn't had any word from her and wasn't seeking any word from her. On both sides of the ocean, everyone was claiming that they hadn't seen or heard from Bernadette. The family were completely bewildered. It was a, a mystery and not one they were enjoying at all. And not one that you would find on TV as some kind of light entertainment. It was something much more up close and personal and quite harrowing and kind of panic inducing really. When you watch any of those programs and, you know, true life crime things or any or missing persons programs, they always tell you how, how vital it is in the first 24, 48 hours to ascertain what has happened. And of course, when 12 months goes by, um, you've, you're starting on the back foot with a cold trail. And that can be very, very difficult indeed. The family eventually found out about the phone call which Bernadette had made to her friend in Spain. The call which claimed Bernadette had raised the money she needed to keep her bar open, and she was on her way back to Spain. Listen, don't let them sell the pub. I've got the money. I'm coming home. I've got it. I've got the money. Tell the lawyer, stop them selling the pub. I'm coming back to Spain. The call was made from the Horse and Groom pub in Tooting, southwest London. It wasn't much to go on, but it was at least evidence that Bernadette had planned to return. It was the family's first piece of the puzzle. Once we had that, and once that was trans translated back to the UK, 
then it became a, a case of trying to find out, well, what had happened in between that phone call and the fact that she's not there. The only thing to suggest that anything untoward had happened was Bernadette's absence. There was no crime scene, no ransom, no call for help. Leon's view is that because of Bernadette's personality and because she was upset over the money, she might have chosen to disappear, either to prove a point or to escape her problems. The family just didn't know. There was a, a question mark about, could she have decided to do something else? Could she have met someone and gone off with them? There was no suggestion that there was anything other than that at this moment in time. So what the family did was canvass the local Irish population in and around southwest London where she, where she was living, go back to her husband and child, try different pubs, this, all that kind of thing. And then it became more serious and they decided to enlist the help of the Salvation Army, uh, Missing Persons Bureau, and they hired a private investigator, they hired a lawyer. They did everything like that to try and reach out and see if anything had happened to her, hospitals, morgues. But there was no response from anybody. Everything came back negative. She simply at that stage had vanished off the face of the earth. Bernadette's family spoke to and sought help from everyone they could think of. But the one place they didn't turn to was the police. Now, in the majority of missing persons cases, the police are the first port of call for distressed families and loved ones. They're usually at the epicentre of the search and the strategy to find someone who's disappeared. So why didn't Bernadette's family involve the police? Yeah, it's a question that's been asked many times. I can only give you the answer that it probably won't make any sense to, to anybody outside the family. But for Irish people living in London at the time, there was a question mark about going to the police. There was a kind of fear of going to the police. Certainly, it was never, it would never have entered their minds that it was something that could be as macabre as foul play or more than that. At the beginning, Bernadette's family would get phone calls from people saying they'd seen Bernadette, that she was working as a barmaid at some pub or another in southwest London. And of course, every time, the family would spring into action. We would scope out those pubs for three or four nights running, just sitting there waiting for her to turn up. And of course, every tip came to naught. That, but as someone I spoke to recently said, you know, when in a missing persons case, there are there are no wild goose chases. Every tip you get, whether it becomes comes to nothing in the end, you have to go there. I, like my father, expected to see her there, serving behind the bar or whatever. I totally expected to see her and have some kind of reunion. But no, it wasn't that at all. Amongst all the toing and froing to pubs across the capital, the image of Bernadette making that phone call from the pub in Tooting played on everyone's minds. I've got the money. I'm coming home. I've got it. I've got the money. Tell the lawyer, stop them selling the pub, I'm coming back. She'd said she had the money to save the pub. But how had she got it? 
Had somebody given it to her? Was it the £10,000 she'd asked the family for? And if so, where was the money now? If you look at, uh, you know, a divorce settlement, that couldn't have taken place because there wasn't enough time to get divorced, you know. And the marital home was still in existence at that stage. So it wasn't from proceeds of, of a house sale. And obviously that would have taken time. At the moment, it's an impenetrable mystery that needs to be, needs to have light shown on it. And someone to come forward and explain where she got that money from. £10,000 wasn't an insignificant amount then. When you think of inflation or what it could be today, that was a lot of money. I think obviously, if you follow the money, if one follows the money, that would give a very, very interesting answer. So assuming that Bernadette had got her hands on the money, could she have decided to use that money on a new life instead of heading back to Molly Malone's? Or was the wedge of cash in her pocket a motive for someone to harm her? Or worse? Leon isn't entertaining rose-tinted outcomes when it comes to what might have happened on the night of the 10th of January, 1993, in the well-worn bar of the Horse and Groom. It was not the Ritz, that bar, let's put it that way. It was a bar of some repute. I don't think all the individuals in there went to mass on a Sunday. She was loud, there's no doubt. And she could have had a glass of wine in the other hand and been very free with that information and someone could have heard her. So was that what happened? An overheard conversation turned into an opportunity for someone with bad intentions? I know for a fact, and this is not saying anything against Marlon, that she was catnip to men and she enjoyed their company and she could well have fallen in with someone. She could have gone on to another bar. She could have met someone while she was traveling. These are all equally feasible. And from there, you know, something untoward could have happened from that regarding the money. And that could have been a motive for any amount of other things to have happened to her. Or perhaps not. We've all heard of Shirley Valentine, who ran off to a Greek island in search of a new life. Isn't it possible that Bernadette might have decided to start fresh somewhere new, perhaps with a new love interest? It's kind of a romantic ideal, isn't it? As I said to you, you know, she was a very individual character, so therefore they opened up the possibility that she could have met someone and decided for another life in the sun. That was certainly an option that was, was discussed. I don't know whether it's a syndrome with people who, whose loved ones go missing in that, in that way, but they, they just didn't allow themselves to think that it could be anything other than Bernadette being Bernadette. And finding someone and falling in madly in love and heading off into the sunset somewhere. But that theory had its flaws too. Because if Bernadette had gone somewhere of her own free will, why wouldn't she get in touch? Not that that was easy to do back in the early 1990s. And the thing to remember about all of this is that we're, we're in 1992 stroke 1993. There, there are no mobile phone devices. There is no internet to speak of. Uh, computers were not the mass market item they are today. There's, it was very hard to even phone a foreign country, you know, let alone seek information about it. 
You know, the world suddenly seemed enormous to them. It could be anywhere and anything could have happened. At that stage, it was very much for them a mystery and they did not have the wherewithal, the capacity emotionally or intellectually to think of where on earth she could be. All these theories have so far been rooted in the UK or in a far-flung exotic destination where Bernadette is living her best life while sipping on a pina colada. But what about closer to home? Could the Costa del Sol, then known as the crime capital of Europe, hold the answers to what happened to Bernadette? Any number of high and low profile gangsters from the UK and Ireland particularly had set up shops, had opened bars and restaurants very close, if not beside, where my aunt had set up her own bar. And they decided to prey upon the expat community as their new source of, of income. So, for example, there were many, many timeshare scams. There was a lot of extortion and protection rackets. Sometimes bar owners on the Malaga Strip would be threatened, either for money or for silence about the crimes going on around them. The narcotic scene in Spain at that time was booming, with an incredible amount of both drug use and distribution. Ecstasy and cocaine were the products of choice. Bar owners, even those with no links to the underworld, could face threats of violence and be pressured to become stores for a syndicate's stash or to launder their ill-gotten money, in turn becoming complicit themselves in the criminal activity. Over his years of amateur detective work, Leon discovered a tactic that was regularly used on bar owners during the 90s by the resident crime gangs. A tactic he's called trapping. The trapping way was, was that was someone would come into your bar, uh, spend high and mighty for a week, and then very drunk on a Saturday night, come into your bar and say, I'm too drunk to take this package home with me. Could you just look after it for tomorrow? Until tomorrow. And then during the night, they would steal it from you. And then they would come in the next day and ask for it. You wouldn't be able to produce it. And they'd say, that contained 10 kilos of cocaine. You owe me 40,000 pounds. And you'd be trapped in that way in a paying off capacity. And there'd be nothing you could do about it because of the threat of violence that hung over you. So could Bernadette have found herself on the wrong side of these groups? Was her dream life in Spain much darker than Leon had ever imagined? Well, Leon's heard an alarming story that... Bernadette and Brian were gassed and robbed in their apartment. Now, when I first heard this story, of course, I was shocked because when you think of someone being gassed, you think of the level of planning and operation that has to go into that. And when I found out that it was their takings that were robbed, and you think, well, this is a bar that at this stage is not doing very well at all. What exactly were they stealing? I canvassed every bar owner that I'd come to, that had come into my acquaintance during my own investigation, and nobody had ever heard of another bar owner being uh, robbed in this manner. It's a military-style operation, but Bernadette and Brian were. They never reported it to the police. And at that stage, they just said it was their takings that were, were, that were robbed. 
Of course, now I'm beginning to think something else was at play here. Uh, something much more than just their meagre takings. It's a story we cannot verify, and there are no reports in the press. But if organised crime groups were operating in and around Malaga, could it be that Molly Malone's did owe money? Had Molly Malone's got on the wrong side of organised crime? Was Bernadette being threatened? Was that the reason she needed money? Bernadette's ex-husband Brian would have his own dealings with organised crime two years after Bernadette's disappearance. He was caught in a police operation in 1995 in Ireland and sentenced to five years in prison for producing vast amounts of drugs for a criminal gang. A court heard that he'd become depressed and in debt following the end of his marriage to Bernadette and had turned to crime. But there's no evidence that organised crime had got to Bernadette or Brian before she disappeared. But Leon still believes that the truth lies in the murky underbelly of the Costa del Sol. So much so that he's published an article stating his case. And from that tiny acorn, this whole investigation has blown wide open. And my articles were published in three different countries, Ireland, Spain and the UK. And from that moment forward, it, it suddenly brought new energy and new impetus into the case and a whole world of information that had lain dormant and latent for all these years suddenly came forth. And in addition to information about Bernadette's possible whereabouts, Leon received much more than he bargained for, which made him think he might have hit upon some kernels of truth. I've received one death threat, one veiled death threat and one threat of violence since I started. And in addition to that, there are people who are too frightened to speak. So there is something about this picture that's not right. But rather than being deterred, Leon's discoveries about this criminal world have spurred him on to get to the truth and to find out whether Bernadette was mixed up in it. For Leon, family is the most important thing, something which was further cemented by his father's recent passing. My father was dying and if there can only be plus size to someone's father dying is that I got to spend the last few days with him. Held his hand, talked to him. He wasn't able to speak much. You know, there was little just signals, little squeezes of my hand to let me know he was still there. And as he was slipping away, I said, I promised him that I would continue to search for her, continue the fight as it were that she would not be forgotten, and now I carry the torch forward. Of course, when you make promises like that, they're very emotionally charged, obviously. At moments like that, they're very difficult. There is no escape from this. I think probably other people who've got um, missing loved ones will tell you the same. Once you've been bitten by this quest, there's, there's no option but to go forward with it, right through to the end to the bottom of the bottle. You've just got to do it. Um, because if you don't do it, if one doesn't do it, who else is going to do it? Like every family member of every missing person, Leon can't help but search for Bernadette wherever he goes. I've walked into bars, I've walked into restaurants, I've been in foreign countries, and I always look for her. 
I look around rooms, I look around bars, I look around restaurants. I hope to bump into her. It's a constant, a constant craving to see her. And I suppose anyone who's had someone go missing on them, it's like a bullet gets lodged in you with no exit wound. It's always there gnawing away at you, causing little bits of damage, little bits of pain and discomfort. It's constantly there. But in a case where foul play feels like an inevitability, Leon realised that without help, he could only do so much. And for that reason, in 2020, Leon decided to make this case an official missing persons investigation. And finally, he contacted his local police force. Well, they seem to sort of think oh, maybe it was just a bit of fantasy, I'm not sure. But very soon they realised, when, when they put me through to the Met, that it was something much, much more than that. And indeed, the, my liaison officer, a DS at the Met, said that he had never heard uh, of a case with this depth and complexity and intrigue in 20 years on the force. Now the police are investigating Bernadette's case, and we want to help in any way we can. Leon hopes the answers will soon emerge, and it could be members of the public who hold the key. Who else was Bernadette talking to back in 1993? Who saw her around the time she disappeared? Or has anyone spoken, then or now, about causing Bernadette harm? Someone, somewhere, has the answers. And that's where we are today, with um, a police investigation and bits of information that are leading us into new areas of inquiry, which I hope will bear fruit and give us the answer we've all been looking for for the past 28 years. After all, it doesn't matter whether someone's been missing for one day, a week, a month, a year, or what is now nearly three decades. It becomes even more imperative that we find out what happened to her. She deserves that. At the bottom of all this sensationalism and all these characters and all these criminals and all these villains and everything else associated with the case, there is a human life here. There's a woman's life at stake. We must never lose sight of that. The truth is out there. Leon and the police cling on to the hope that with so much time passed, loyalties may have changed on the Costa del Sol or at home, and someone may want to speak up. They're keen for you to help in any way that you can. We've put the details of this case on our website, themissingpodcast.org. On there, you'll find images and details, not just for this case, but for every case we featured on the show. There's also links where you can share vital information on these cases with the experts at Locate International. They've set up a team to investigate these cases and explore any information that comes in. And you'll find more information about the charity Missing People, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, 
Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.